This morning we're going to begin to look at Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman that he met at a well near the town of Sychar. Sychar is in Samaria. This particular story is found only here in John chapter 4. It's not found in, in the other uh, synoptic gospels. You won't see it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only here in this particular area of Scripture. The story begins with Jesus and his disciples traveling uh, from Judea up into Samaria uh, to get, actually get to Galilee. So it's like they're down here and they want to go all the way up north to Galilee and they have to go through Samaria. So the story kind of begins with them making that, that travel. And during the journey, they stopped at a famous well, a famous piece of land and a famous well to refresh themselves. Uh, the disciples, however, decided to go into town to buy food while Jesus remained at the well. And a, a woman kind of appears and walks up and comes over to the well and she begins to, to draw water from the well. And Jesus, wearied from his travels, asks her for a drink. And from this point, an incredible conversation takes place. Just, in fact, it's, uh, according to some of my research, it's the longest one-on-one conversation recorded in all of Scripture. Now, this scene sets the stage for the classic biblical meet-cute. A meet-cute is a scene in which a future romantic couple meets for the first time. Think of, in terms of Scripture, think of Rebecca and Isaac, or maybe... Rachel and Jacob, or Zipporah and Moses, they all met at wells. And uh, a well, quite frankly, according to Scripture, is a good place for a thirsty man to pick up a lady. But we must understand that Jesus didn't come to the well looking for a date. He wasn't there to pick up a woman. So it has the meet-cute sense to it, but that's not at all what Jesus was after here. He did not come there. For, for that purpose, like Isaac and Jacob and Moses and others have done. He came to the well to win a lost soul. He came to the well to bring and to offer satisfaction to a weary soul. He might have been weary physically because of he'd been out walking around in the hot sun all day, but let me tell you, this person that he meets there was way more weary, and they were weary in a sense that's beyond and transcends the physical. They were weary in their soul. They were weary in their spirit. And so that's why he comes to the well. This morning, we are going to uh, look at five C's. Uh, We're going to look at the conflict. We're going to look at the course, the contact, the confusion, and then the craving. So those are our five C's. Let's look at the first C. This is the conflict, okay? The conflict. We see that in verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. It says this, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, got that parenthetical in two, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It says in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So there was a, a conflict brewing at the Judean countryside where Jesus' disciples and John 
were performing baptisms. So you remember from last week, if you were with us, or maybe you listened online, that's where we left off. Jesus was out there and his disciples were baptizing and, and John the Baptist was out there and they were on opposing sides of the river and there was this kind of strange dynamic and, and all of that. Well, tensions began to arise and now at that same place and at that same time, there was a conflict brewing. And the conflict had to do with Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. John's disciples were all tweaked and bent out of shape because Jesus' ministry was expanding and John the Baptist's ministry was, was shrinking. Now, adding fuel for the fire, the Pharisees, you know, the, the religious elite of Israel, they had become triggered. They had become activated, if you want to put it that way. Till now, we have seen basically no response to Jesus from the Pharisees in John's gospel, but, but this particular text marks the turning point. This is where their attention begins to get turned on to Jesus in a, in a heightened way. And I, I believe it was due to the growing popularity of Jesus, right? That's what caught the Pharisees' attention. When John the Baptist's ministry became large, the Pharisees figured that out and they sent police and some other religious leaders to the riverside to investigate. And we talked about this probably a month ago. They questioned, when they arrived, they questioned John the Baptist. And really what they were aiming to do is frustrate and end his ministry, maybe by intimidation or something like that. Well, Jesus was fully aware of what the Pharisees had done with John the Baptist because he had been coming down to the river to listen to John. So he saw this transpire. And to avoid a a potential three-way conflict, right, between two groups of disciples and the Pharisees, Jesus does what is super, super wise in what he would think of, and I would not figure out till after the fact, and I'm already in trouble. He leaves the area, the territory, and he travels north to Galilee. So that's the conflict, right? You've got a conflict brewing between disciples and Pharisees, and and Jesus wants to avoid the conflict, and he leaves and starts to head out for Galilee. And I'm just right there prompted to, uh, to think about that for a moment and the fact that Jesus avoided conflict. And, and, you know, there's a number of reasons why he, he did that, but uh, one, one would be that he didn't want that kind of trouble at this stage in his ministry because his ministry was fairly new. But, but that just hits me right there. He, he was the type of person who avoids conflict. And, and then, of course, an immediate application is, am I that kind of person or do I seek conflict? So often I seek conflict. Maybe it's because of an insecurity or something like that, and I just want to argue and win an argument so I can feel good about myself and then pretty much feel bad later. Hence the reason, again, why I got rid of Facebook. Way less confrontation since I got rid of that scourge. I'm telling you, the only conflict I've had is in my own house with my own wife, and that's natural. We don't really have that much conflict, but that's it. It's narrowed down to our own house now. I'm not going rounds with people on the outside and making myself look stupid or bringing the name of Jesus into reproach or making myself feel good about what I do or what I say or how smart I am or how good I know the Bible. The only conflict I have to deal with is the normal average stuff. But 
shouldn't we be people who avoid conflict, right? Shouldn't we be a people, if we're in Christ, we should want to be like Christ. And, and, you know, they'll call you a sissy if you avoid conflict, if you turn away and walk away from trouble, right? Oh, he's not a man. He couldn't even handle himself. Well, you know what? Avoiding conflict is great. Jesus did it. Could Jesus have stayed there and taken care of business? Could he have not called down a zillion legions of angels? He could do whatever he wants, but he avoided the conflict. He avoided the conflict. Let's be people who follow his example and avoid conflict. Number two, the course, verses 4 through 6. And it says this, and this is so interesting. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. And then it says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. There's a little history lesson. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. I get the idea that he's sitting kind of on the rim if it had one. And it says it was about the sixth hour. So this is the course of travel. And I don't know if you're familiar with with ancient Israel, but the geography is fairly simple. You know, to to the west, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. To the east, you've got uh, Perea. To the south, you've got Judea. In the middle, you've got Samaria. And to the north, you've got Galilee. I'm trying to give you a mental picture. And there were three courses or routes you could travel to get from Judea to Galilee. So from the southern portion, there were three thoroughfares you could take to get up north. You could take the western course and travel along the Mediterranean Sea. You could take the eastern course and travel through Perea. Or you could take the middle course and go right up through Samaria. The middle course was the shortest at about a three days journey by foot. But Jews rarely ever took that course because doing so, in doing so, they'd have to go through Samaria. Jews did not like Samaritans. And Samaritans did not like Jews. There was a a rivalry between them, and it had been there for, oh, Lord, it goes all the way back to the Assyrian captivity of the 700s B.C., around 740. When Assyria conquered the Jewish province of Samaria, which was a primary province in those days, when they conquered that territory, they removed large numbers of Jews and imported large numbers of foreigners or people that weren't Jewish. So they took a lot of the Jews out and put a whole lot of people in that weren't Jewish. And they didn't get all the Jews out because I don't think there's any way to really remove all of the people. It's almost like when you're dealing with ants. You take out the little hill, next thing you know, they're back. And so the remaining Jews that were there in Samaria began to intermarry and and, and join in relationship with these foreign peoples. And, and once they kind of became this kind of half-pagan, half-Jewish group of people, they uh, began to develop their own brand of Judaism. They took in and, and some of the, uh, the pagan religions and added it to Judaism and kind of formed their own view or style of Judaism. And at that point, they... They only recognized it. They, they dropped off the rest of the Old Testament and only kind of adhered to the Pentateuch, which is the five, first five books of the Bible, you know, the books of Moses. So they dropped the rest of the Old Testament and, and went with those five books and said that's their Bible. So they changed Judaism, made their own view of it, and they reduced down their Bibles. 
And over time, Jews from other regions began to see the Samaritans as tainted, as defiled, as half-breeds, as un-Jewish. And after Cyrus the Great, uh, he was just a phenomenal Persian king, just a super, super, he was over the Medo-Persian Empire. After he rebuilt Jerusalem, the Jews, because it had been destroyed, the Jews forbid the Samaritans from worshiping at the temple. So the Jewish temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt, and at that point, the Jews said no to Samaritans, they can't come into the temple, they forbid them from going into their own temple. And the Samaritans responded by building their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So you're not going to let us come and worship at the temple that we've worshipped at this whole time. We'll just build our own temple. And so they chose Mount Gerizim and they built the temple on that big rock. And the tension between these two groups began to skyrocket in 105 B.C. when Samaritan operatives came into Jerusalem, came into the temple, and scattered human bones all throughout the temple courts during the Passover feast. And if you know anything about Jewish law or ordinance or ceremonial clean and all that stuff and all that jargon, all their ordinances, human bones would defile things, kind of like pig's flesh would. And so what they did was they deliberately came into the temple, threw a bunch of human bones in there, and rendered it unclean in the middle of Passover celebration, the biggest celebration they had every year. And uh, this heinous act, according to the Jews, defiled the sanctuary, making it impossible for them to celebrate the most important feast of the year. So this was a, an, an, a spiteful, hateful act by the Samaritans against the Jews. They, they hated the Jews. They hated being mistreated by them. They hated being excluded by them. And so they said, we'll go down and attack their temple. And they do it by throwing human bones and screwing up their entire Passover week. Now, the Jews retaliated uh, at a much higher scale. When the Jews do things, they go big. And about five years later, in 110 B.C., they sent the Maccabean leader, John Hyrcanus, up into Samaria. And he went up there with a small force. He entered Samaria. He ascended Mount Gerizim. And he attacked and thoroughly, absolutely destroyed the Samaritan temple. Annihilated it. It was as if it got hit by a 500-pounder or a 2,000-pound bomb. Annihilated it, leaving it in ruins. And it hadn't been even rebuilt. In fact, in our text a little later, the woman points to the ruins that are up on top of the mountain. So that was their retaliation. You want to throw dead men's bones in our thing and screw up our worship? We'll just level your temple. And they did. They went up and annihilated it. And this is just before the turn of the century. In Jesus' day, I'm trying to give you background so you understand the tension. In Jesus' day, the rivalry was still going strong. All of that animosity and hatred going both ways was still there. In fact, Jews referred to Samaritans as a herd, not a nation. Probably not a politically correct, kind way to refer to your neighbors. They're a herd. A herd of what? Pigs. They also referred to them as dogs, not as people. Okay, so there's just some of, the, some of the, the titles that they had. And let me tell you, the Samaritans had a, had a few lovely ones for the Jews as well. I'm not going to get into it, but they had some for them too. So the hatred was mutual. The animosity was mutual. Here's the bottom line. If a Jewish 
person, because of all this history, because it's still present, the rivalry is still there. If a Jewish person needed to travel to, uh, from Judea to Galilee to go from south to north, he or she would take one of the longer, larger, or one of the longer courses and just flat out go around Samaria. They would not go through Samaria no matter what. I'm not going through the land of the people who defiled our temple, who have given us trouble for 700 years, 600 years, blah, blah, blah. So they would take the longer courses. And this is a devout, pious Jew that would do this. Jews who didn't really care about Yahweh, don't, they just go up through the middle. But if you were religious, if you were a religious leader, anything like that, man, you would go all the way up the coast or you would go through Perea. And Perea was pretty much a pagan land as well, but it was better pagan than Samaria. No matter what, you would not go through Samaria. In fact, three-day journey through Samaria, you take the other route, you've got a week. They would travel an extra four days just to avoid contact with a Samaritan. And now I want you to look again at verse 4. What does it say? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Uh, Jesus, you understand the history of our people and, and those meatballs up there. Do you not understand that you're, you, you are not supposed to go, had to, what are you talking about? I wonder if when he said we're going through Samaria, if his disciples went, ooh, do you guys have any like rubber suits we can put on just in case we make contact? Do you have rubber boots? I don't want to get the dust on my feet. I wonder what was going through their minds. But I like that word had. Put that in quotations, had. There's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's not that he, it's not that he was just going to go through Samaria. It says he had to go through Samaria. Some say he had to go through Samaria because it would save him time and help keep him on schedule. To me, that's dumb. It just it makes Jesus sound like he's a business person who religiously sticks to his calendar no matter what. It makes him sound reactionary. It makes him sound schedule-bound. When you read the Gospels, you get a sense that Jesus followed a divine timeline, but his way of doing it was super organic and not at all technical. You never hear Jesus say things like, I don't have the time to do this or that. I, I wish I could go, but I have to stick to my schedule. Or I got to go. I need to get to my next appointment. Those are the things that pastors say. Those are the things that realtors say. Those are the things that you say on occasion when you have stuff to do. You never see Jesus say anything or even behave like that at all. So I don't like the idea of he had to do it because he had to save time. I don't know if I, I agree with that interpretation, although I wouldn't reject the idea of him following a divine schedule. He just did it in a way that it seems so organic and natural, if you want to call it that. I believe Jesus had a threefold reason for going through Samaria. First, he had to go through Samaria because it was the will of the Father. That would be primary. Down in verse 34 of this very same passage, he said, My food is to do the will of Him, that's the Father, who sent me and to accomplish His work. Right there you get the sense that He's nourished by the job and task and service unto His Father. That's, that's, what his, that's his nutrition. That's what nourishes Him. That's what He has to do. That's my focus. I'm not worried about my stomach. I'm concerned about the Father's will and accomplishing that. And then over in John 6, 38, he said something similar. He said, for I have not come down from heaven. Uh, yeah, I have, he says, for I have come down, pardon me, for I have come down from heaven 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? In those two statements, we get the idea that the primary thing on Jesus' mind at all times was accomplishing the Father's will. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Nothing more, nothing less. And it was the Father's will for Jesus to go through Samaria instead of around it. Think of it like that. So first, it's the Father's will. Second, He had to go through Samaria to bring the message of salvation, the gospel, to the Samaritan people. That's obvious from the text. God's plan has always been to save folks from every tribe and tongue, not just Jews. And an incredible way to even save Samaritans, the most despised people in the area at that time. By going through Samaria, Jesus tore down the boundaries of the Jews and showed that God's plan of salvation is indeed global. Okay, so you get the sense there that he's going in to to, to preach the gospel to a new people group. All of his preaching up to this point had been done to Jews in Jerusalem and around there, and even Jews up in Galilee before he went back into Judea. And so now he's taking the gospel to a foreign group, to people outside of the covenant and non-Jewish people, because God's plan has always been global. So that's the second, taking the gospel to the Samaritans, some other people. Third, Jesus had to go through Samaria to teach His disciples a valuable lesson. There was a lesson here for His disciples. As with their Jewish brethren, the disciples were also prone to religious bigotry. And if you don't believe me, go read Galatians 2, verse 12, where where Peter is rebuked by Paul because Peter all of a sudden doesn't want to hang around with Gentiles who haven't been circumcised and all that. He, all of a sudden, he, he diverts, he regresses and goes back to the old mode of, of neglecting and rejecting people who aren't Jewish. Even Simon Peter did that, if you can believe it. And so these disciples of Jesus' were prone to religious bigotry, to separation and all of that. It happens. We are all prone to various forms of racism and bigotry. We are. We are all prone to it. As future apostles and really the key preachers in the early church, these guys needed to learn to overcome their prejudices and begin to see people as Jesus sees them. Right? If they're going to go out and preach the gospel, they can't say, well, we're only going to preach it to Jews, or we're only going to preach it to people that are this color or this ethnic background. they got to get this down themselves. And so he's taking them there He's taking them there to learn that there are no boundaries for God's salvation and, and teach them to learn to put away with, with, that, you know, with the bigotry and the separation that they had ingrained. And you've got to give them some grace here. This stuff is ingrained in the Jewish people from the moment they take their first breath. Today, they're taught, hate Jesus, and we're the only good people, and everyone else is lame. Literally, that's how they're taught today. It's horrible. And that's how they were back then. So these guys had some big obstacles to overcome. When Jesus and the disciples came into Samaria, they went to a famous piece of land which featured a famous well. This piece of land was originally acquired by Jacob, one of the early Jewish patriarchs, who took it from the Amorites after winning a decisive battle against them. You can read about that in Genesis 48, verse 22 in particular. 
The first thing Jacob did when he acquired this land was he, de- he dug a, a, a really, really big well. He dug a deep well, and it became known as Jacob's well. And by the way, it's still there today. It's still there today. And this well is nine feet in diameter, and it's 75 feet deep. So this is a really, really big well. And it is supplied by an underground spring. So it's literally like a big cylinder that taps into an underground spring. And it's there today, and it has water in it. Jacob uh, bequeathed the land, this parcel of land, to his son Joseph, who was later buried there. So that's some of the history. I'm giving you an idea of how important this piece of land and well are. This piece of land is located about a mile south of Sychar, the town that's mentioned here. So it's a mile below Sychar. Sychar was what? It was a Samaritan village or city and the home of the woman in our story. When Jesus and the disciples uh, arrived at the well, Jesus sat down near the well, maybe on the rim if it had one, and, uh, and it says they all arrived at around, six, around the sixth hour. What is the sixth hour? Well, here John, the author, used Roman time uh, instead of Jewish time. Jewish time would be noon. Roman time would be six hours past noon. What is six hours past noon? 6 p.m. So this is supper time. This is evening. Here's what's important about this particular time. This moment on a day like that day then is the hottest time of the day. It is the hottest part of the day. Now, what is the hottest part of the day around here? About 5 o'clock, isn't it? 4 or 5, that's when you crank that AC down and you're wondering if it still works. In this region, in this particular area of the Mediterranean, uh, four, five, and six are the hottest parts of the day, okay? Now let's look at the third C, the contact, verses 7 through 8. So they're at the well. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus is sitting by it, and it says this in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Just straight up. Just, he didn't even say please. Give me, I would have been like, madam, you know. You wouldn't call her madam, believe me. Please give me a drink. Jesus, just, he's not being impolite. He just says, give me a drink. He wasn't being rude. Just give me a drink. And, and look at the parenthetical in verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now let me tell you something here. There is a lot of truth buried In verse 7, just in verse 7, there's an enormous amount of detail buried into that. And I'll tell you, at first glance, you just see it, and she comes to the thing, and he asks for a drink, and that's it, and that's all she wrote. No, 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 there's so much going on here. Some of you are already familiar with the story and some of the details. There are three things we must know if we are to properly understand what is happening here. Okay, so you need to pay close attention. First, Sychar has its own well. The town the woman lives in has a well. Okay? If Sychar has its own well, why did this woman leave her village, walk away from the well, and travel two miles round trip to fetch water? It's a good question. You got a well right in the middle of your little town, 
and you don't go to that well and you walk out of town and walk two miles round trip. When's the last time any of us walked one mile? Pretty far. Two miles round trip carrying a heavy pail of water? I'll choose the one in town. So that's the first detail. It has a well, but she doesn't go to that one. She goes out of town, two-mile round trip to get the water. Second, women never, ever, ever fetched water during the hottest part of the day. Never. What sense would that make? You would, have the pay, you would drink the pail down before you got back to your destination. In fact, it, the, the, it might have just dissolved, evaporated. I mean, it was hot. It's 100 degrees in this place, and it's humid. Women never, ever went to the well. Even if the well was in town and close by, they didn't go to the well at the hottest part of the day. They went in the morning time. They would go in the morning to collect water for that day, and obviously the morning is the cool part of the day. Why did this woman fetch water during the hottest part of the day at 6 p.m.? Why did she go out of town and go two miles? Why did she go at seemingly the dumbest time in the universe to go get water? Third, women rarely, if ever, went to fetch water alone. They went in groups. Why? Because there is strength in numbers. These are, this is a dangerous territory. And they like to talk. They like to talk about their families. They like to talk about their marriages. They like to talk about their kids. Oh, you know, little Jimmy got that best honor roll thing yesterday. You don't even know how smart my kid is. Oh, really? I get, bet he is real super smart. I don't know where that came from. It just, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to give you an example. Paul's shaking his head, which means I missed the mark. I'm making the Samaritans sound like they're from Kentucky. I don't know. They weren't from Kentucky. I apologize if you're from the South. But they would talk about their stuff. Right? Women do that. I saw something interesting happen earlier in the service, before the service began. There were five or six women by the door talking, and all the men were walking by like this. You know, they didn't want to get sucked in. And the women are like, we don't want to suck you in. They like to talk. They like to gossip. Could you know what Marjorie did? That's unfortunate, but they like to do all that stuff. And so they never, ever, ever went to the well alone. They went in groups. I got to go to the well to get water. They knew what time to do it. They had times when they did it. They would all assemble and go to the well together. This, This is how they behaved. They never went alone. Why was this woman alone? Nobody was with her. It was just her and her bucket, right? So according to her own culture, right, because this is like, this is like uns, undictated, unspoken truth. We just do things a certain way in this culture. According to her own culture, she totally broke protocol. She did the opposite of what everyone else in town does. All the women do things a certain way, but this woman did things like, well, she just like a rebel? What was, what was going on with her? She went out of her way? She went during the hardest, hottest part of the day, and she went alone. Why? She had to. Why? Because she was a social outcast. That's why. Verse 18, she had been married and divorced five times and was currently living with her boyfriend. 
That kind of behavior, even in Samaritan culture, was completely shameful and totally unacceptable. It had been about like the 50s here. Remember how it was in the 50s? You didn't even talk about divorce. She said divorce. Lord, have mercy on her. It's kind of sad that our culture has gotten away from those traditions but the way that these people in this community respond to her is, is demonic. You see, the, uh, the women of Sychar knew her and her story. They knew who she was. They knew her past. They knew her current living situation. They knew about all those marriages. I mean, she had more marriages than Trump. They knew her. They knew about her shack up. But she's living with a guy. Boy, when all the other women assembled and went and did their thing, they probably talked about her. Can you believe her? What a whore. What a harlot. What an adulteress. Gosh, she's despicable. God, just kill her. She was nothing more than an adulteress, nothing more than a harlot to, to the other people in the community, especially the women. In fact, they forbid her from associating with them. We don't want to be, don't be seen with her. They banished her from their presence, from their social circles. This is why she broke protocol. She really didn't have a choice. And after lowering her bucket into the well and retrieving it, Jesus, who was sitting nearby, spoke to her. This is a big no-no. Jews do not speak with Samaritans. Jewish men do not speak with women besides their wives unless they have permission to do so. You know, you got a couple, a pair of couples standing here, and this guy can't even talk to this other guy's wife unless the husband gives him permission. They had some serious lines. Don't cross them. Don't go over there and talk to my wife. You send her a text, we're going to throw down. You, you couldn't. You, you couldn't even, you couldn't eat, don't even look at her. You'd be like, yes, dear. She's over here. Yes, dear. Oh, sorry, dear. You, Jews don't speak with Samaritans. Jewish men do not speak with women besides their wives unless they have permission. And here's the big one. Jewish rabbis never, 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 never spoke with women on the street. And Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. If you saw a, a religious leader, a rabbi, a Pharisee, or anything like that talking to a woman, I'm not saying a woman of the street. I'm saying a woman on the street probably loses profession. By sitting there and speaking to this woman, give me a drink, Jesus broke protocol. She comes over and he says, give me a drink. He just literally toilet flushed Samaritan protocol, Jewish protocol. He didn't break God's holy law, which is really about love. Jesus says, give me a drink. Well, Jesus was thirsty after walking in the hot sun all day, wasn't he? What you get there is a picture of his humanity, the incarnation, the weakness 
of the flesh. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got tired. Jesus, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus what? Wept. Now I'll tell you, John, the author here, added an important detail in verse 8. Jesus' disciples were not there when this went down because they had gone into Sychar to buy food for dinner. This is hugely significant. I'd, I'd say this was nothing short of a miracle because Jews did not eat Samaritan's food. In fact, they wouldn't touch Samaritans or anything that had been touched by a Samaritan. According to a, another tradition, physical contact with anything Samaritan, including a person, would render a Jew ceremonially unclean for several days. A pious Jew would rather dance cheek to cheek with a leper than make contact with a lowly and despicable Samaritan. This is, this is how much they hated the Samaritans. And you know they banished lepers to colonies. And yet here in this text we see Jesus' extremely Jewish disciples going into a Samaritan city to buy food. This is a testimony to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. The walls of social separation were already beginning to come down in their lives. The ministry of Jesus, the teaching and example of Jesus was already rubbing off on these guys big time. First of all, they were with him in Samaria. That's bizarre. Secondly, they go into town to buy food from these dogs, this herd. The gospel was already working in their lives. Four, the confusion... Verses 9 through 12, this is the response of the Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parenthetical, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I love that. Where do you get it? I want some. Give me a bottle. Give me a case. How much is it? Verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. The Samaritan woman was confused, to say the least. And she was confused about three things. First, she was confused by Jesus' request. She knew the rules. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? Or vice versa. This is a two-way street. When, When Jesus said, give me a drink, it literally blew her away. She became filled with consternation, a strange combination of confusion and astonishment. Like, dude, did you just talk to me? Her initial response in verse 9 is is like this. Why did you ask me for a drink? You're not supposed to do that. 
She's bewildered. She's blown away. She's astonished. She's confused. Consternation has set in. She, she doesn't... This is so unlikely. You've broke precedent. She'd probably never, ever, ever have been spoken to by a Jewish person in her whole life. And he asked for a drink, and she's like, dude, you're not supposed to do that. She was confused by his question. Second, she was confused by Jesus' identity. She had no idea he is the gift of God, a.k.a. Messiah. But verse 25 is interesting, right? It says that she was waiting for Messiah. The Samaritan people were waiting for Messiah. This tells us that she had a, a type of faith, and it isn't true faith, but it's a type of faith. It tells us that she had messianic hopes like her Jewish neighbors. But she didn't realize who Jesus is at this point. But her wait was over. Messiah had come, and not only that, he was sitting there speaking to her, but she didn't understand that at first. In her confusion, she asked if Jesus is greater than the one who gave the Samaritans this well, the patriarch Jacob. She referred to him as our father Jacob. Now, I'm a little confused by her question here. I'm not sure if she was asking a sincere question in an attempt to figure out who Jesus is, or if she was trying to get a rise out of him. And I think that she was trying to figure out who Jesus is. I don't think she was trying to get under his skin. But I can tell you this, saying that Jacob gave the Samaritans this well and calling him father would offend a Jew exponentially. It would blow him out. How dare you doggish people refer to our patriarch as your dad? How dare you say that he gave this well to you? You don't even know our history. He gave it to Joseph, and we're the rightful owners of it. So this would tick off a Jew if you said these things. And how does Jesus respond? He disregards her question. Third, she was confused about Jesus' offer. Jesus came to offer her what she truly needed. She wasn't able to discern or to understand the real offering that Jesus is, is trying to offer her here. She didn't understand that at first. But Jesus had come to offer her, to give her what she truly needed. Well, more history here, ever since the fall of man, and this is a, really a very important thing for you to hear, ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, Man has had what C.S. Lewis calls a God-shaped hole in his heart. I love that metaphor or illustration. I love it. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually and they became separated from God. This spiritual death and separation represent the God-shaped hole. It's like an essential part of who we are has gone missing. When they sinned, they lost their sense of identity, their sense of meaning, sense of purpose, sense of security. They lost their joy. Why? Because they lost the one who supplies those things, God Himself. Their progeny, the entire human race, has the exact same problem. That means you and I. This is why people are constantly searching for meaning and searching for satisfaction in life. 
And this is why they seek to find meaning and satisfaction in everything and in everyone, but never find it. C.S. Lewis also said, and I love this quote, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The current, and just as a modern-day example, the current gender crisis that we are seeing in our culture is a result of the fall and a desperate attempt to find meaning and satisfaction or to fill the God-shaped hole. At the core of these people, they're just lost and they're trying to figure out who they can be or they're trying to satisfy themselves. And that's why they think that they can achieve that through maybe some gender reassignment or declaring what their true gender is. What we must come to understand, listen closely, what we must come to understand about our fallen condition as people is that only God can fix it. Only God can fix the God-shaped hole. Dope won't fill it. Booze won't fill it. Money won't fill it. Possessions won't fill it. Sex won't fill it. Careers won't fill it. Friends won't fill it. Family won't fill it. Marriages won't fill it. Case in point, the Samaritan woman. Nothing will fill the God-shaped hole that we all have, but God Himself in and through Christ Jesus. Jesus was offering the Samaritan woman that which will truly satisfy her. He called it living water. Living water represents eternal life. What is eternal life? How did Jesus define it in John 17, 3? He said that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a mercy-based, grace-centered, love-saturated, joy-filled, perpetual, ongoing relationship with God. That's how I defined it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus was offering the Samaritan woman the gift of God Himself because He is the living water. He is the living water. He is the God who fills the God-shaped hole. He alone. He was there to give her Himself. And in the giving of Himself and in the receiving of Himself, she would find what she's always been looking for. And quite frankly, at this point, she doesn't even realize she needs him. She doesn't even know she has the need. And that's what's so scary and sad about this thing. Satan blinds our eyes. We get jacked up and get all involved in all these things that we think are satisfying. We don't even realize. We all realize we have a problem because we have this desperate searching all the time. And we go from one thing to another in one relationship. We all understand there are symptoms there, but we don't understand at the core what our problem is. And it's because we have a vacuum in our soul. It's because we are dead to God and only God can make us alive and put Himself in us through the Holy Spirit and fill the void. And only then can we begin to be satisfied. Only then. Only then. She just wanted physical water. She just wanted her physical thirst taken care of. But He was there to satisfy her spiritual thirst. Think of it like that. 
Only when your spiritual thirst is satisfied by Christ in Christ alone can you begin to be satisfied at the physical level. The spiritual is more important than the physical. It dictates what we do physically. If there's a hole there, we're going to live a, a holish life, a life of emptiness, endless pursuits. And he's there to offer it to her, to give it to her. Did she get it at this point? Did she understand what Jesus was offering? No, she was still confused. She was still confused. She didn't understand that Jesus was speaking to her spiritually. She was just thinking of water in the well. Look at the fifth C. This is the craving. The craving that we all have. Verses 13 through 18, Jesus said to her, and he's pointing to the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come, to the, come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and, and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, answered him, I have no husband. I, I got no husband. I'm not married. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus basically tells her that he is not referring to physical water, the water in the well. That kind of water will only provide temporary relief, temporary satisfaction, right? After you drink it and it's hot, you need more and you need more. In fact, you can't go more than a couple days without it or you'll die. And those who, who drink that physical water, Jesus says, they're just going to become thirsty again. This is where he really kind of turns it up on her. You're talking about that. I'm talking about something else. This is, was his way. When he tells her that you're just going to get thirsty over and over and over, this was his way of telling her that temporal things will basically bring temporary relief. They won't bring lasting relief. They won't truly satisfy. The things of this world will never subdue man's perpetual craving. They won't satisfy men's cravings. In fact, even when you eat physical food, a few hours later you need to eat again. And if you pump iron, it's like five minutes. I need more protein. Look out. Jesus is telling her, you drink this, you're going to get thirsty again. You need to drink what I got because it will satisfy your thirst once and for all. But see, the trick of a fallen world and Satan is, is that all of the stuff that we can acquire is going to bring lasting satisfaction. This is why you buy a really nice house and you remodel it a year later. What was wrong? You had beautiful floors. God-shaped hole. Nobody would ever say that. This is why we do what we do. This is why we function the way we function. He tells her that temporal things, water like that, it's not going to satisfy you. The things of the world never will. They will never fill the God-shaped hole. Jesus again points to the remedy. Whoever partakes of the living water He provides will never be thirsty again. How is this possible? Well, this living water becomes an inner spring. An inner spring will, what, continue to flow and fill us with God's satisfying presence. This is an obvious reference to the Holy Spirit. 
When, when you become a believer, you have, you have the Holy Spirit and you have the presence of God in you and He is there to perpetually satisfy your spiritual thirst. It's, it's like a wellspring is developed in us. We don't have to go somewhere to find it. Just remember who's in you. You can be satisfied spiritually right then. It's an obvious reference to the Holy Spirit. Great question. Will this inner spring ever run dry? Absolutely not. Jesus said the inner spring does what? It wells up to eternal life, which means it'll never run dry. Never. Thus the reason why he won't be spiritually thirsty. It's always there to provide and to satisfy. It keeps flowing and keeps providing. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. What was going on with the Samaritan woman at this point? Well, she still thought Jesus was referring to physical water and possibly offering her indoor plumbing like the Romans had in their homes. Well, that'd be just spectacular. Could you get some plumbing going and pipe it in from the river over there? And and she begins to to basically beg Jesus for the living water. Sir, give it to me so I, I won't be thirsty and I won't have to keep coming to this place. That'd be great. And I think she was... She wanted the indoor plumbing not because she was thirsty, but because if she had it, she wouldn't have to leave her house and face public ridicule. Boy, that'd be easy. I could just contain myself and keep myself behind here and nobody can see who I am or, and, and, and jeer and, 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 and sling scorn and, and yell those terrible whore. That, somebody called me a whore the other day. It was unreal. And I'd just leave the house and people were just blowing me up. Well, she could just stay at home, right? Wouldn't have to go outside and deal with it. I think that's what she was thinking. And Jesus' response to her is just nothing short of spectacular. He tells her to go and get her husband and then come back. This was his way of steering the focus off of indoor plumbing and onto her personal life and real need. She replied, I have no husband. Jesus says, I know. You've had five of them. And now you're living with your boyfriend. I know who you are. In bringing these things to her attention, Jesus was setting out to prove a couple of things. First, to prove His deity. You know, Jesus wants her to know that He's Messiah. And Messiah is God and He's got to prove His deity to her. And reciting this knowledge of her and information without even knowing the gal shows that He's omniscient. He knows her life inside and out. He knows her marriages. He knows who she is. She knows, he knows everything. He knows everything about her. And that, that knowledge shows that he's omniscient, that he has all knowledge. That's a divine ability. It belongs to God alone. And if Jesus has omniscience and knows her past and history and all that she's done, and he knows those things about me and you and everyone else, then he, if he has the ability, then obviously he's God. That's his point. Secondly, he was setting out to prove that she needs a Savior, that she needs the living water, that she needs Jesus himself. Her shack up and failed marriages reveal that she is lost and seeking to find meaning and satisfaction in someone other than God. You see, that's what her marriages represent. Maybe some of those guys were real dirtbags and left her out in the cold. That happened back in that culture. A Jewish man could divorce his wife for burning the falafel. It was unreal. I draw the line at the toaster strudel. If she burns those, we're going to court. 
Tell you what, don't mess with my toaster strudel. It's unreal what they would do. I mean, it's just, it's just like, are you serious? You could divorce your wife over screwing up a meal? Yeah, that wasn't God's will. It's the kind of stupid stuff they did. But her marriages show. You think about it. She gets married to a guy, and she's hoping he's the man of her dreams and that he will make her happy and that he will be faithful to her and true and that he will satisfy her in a number of ways and that he will f- bring purpose and security and fulfillment into her life. She tries that five times, and now she's on her sixth. What is wrong with these men? The better question to ask is, what is wrong with you? You're the common denominator in each marriage. Don't think about them. Think about you. You see, all those marriages represent that pursuit of meaning and satisfaction. Even living with that boyfriend. We're going to try it again, but we're going to wait to get married to make sure that it works. We're going to take a test drive. That's what people say today. Okay. This woman had spent her life trying to fill the God-shaped hole. And she did it through marriages and relationships. And fallen sinners try to do this in in a zillion different ways, whether it be through relationships or dope or anything else. And in reciting to her her past and present, he was essentially telling her that that's, look, you have the God-shaped hole, and he was basically telling her that she's a sinner and she's in need of God's saving and satisfying grace in the living water alone, in Jesus. He wasn't there to beat her up because of her sins. She wasn't understanding what he meant, and he drew a line in the sand and talked about her real need and used her a physical example, the physical examples of her own life to show that, look, you're empty. You do what you do because you're a lost sinner and you need me. That's what he's saying to her. In fact, in the next section, Jesus shows how she is trying. He's not done with her. In the next section, he he shows how she is trying to use false religion to fill the God-shaped hole, right? She tried to use marriages to do it. And then in the next section, you read about her religion, and she's pointing to a mountain and saying, we worship here and do that. She was using false religion. You know why? Because lost sinners, we do whatever we can to fill the God-shaped hole, even though we don't realize we have it. We just go from one thing to another. We never, ever find satisfaction in people or things. Closing. I just want you to hear me. Only God can satisfy our deepest, deepest craving. Only God can satisfy our spiritual thirst. Only God can can fill the God-shaped hole, and He does it through Jesus, the living water. Does it mean that once you have Jesus, you'll never long for anything else? For crying out loud, you've got to deal with the flesh, but at least you've got the Savior, and you've got the true source for satisfaction anytime you need it. And and as you grow in your faith, you will learn to be more and more satisfied in Him and pursue worldly things less. But let me tell you, beginning with Jesus is the starting point. If you don't 
begin there, you, you will never, ever even begin the process of being spiritually or even physically satisfied. My question to you is this. Have you come to the fountain? Have you received this living water? Let me, let me tell you how you do that. Maybe you're asking, well, how do I do that? Okay, I want the living water. Well, the Samaritan woman even asked for that. Let me tell you how you receive, ingest the living water. By grace, we believe Jesus died for our sins. We believe He was buried to settle our account. We believe that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. That's the gospel. Receiving the water has to do with believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ and receiving that for yourself, believing He did those things for you and that apart from Him, you will be lost. Until you receive the living water, until you believe the gospel, you will not be satisfied. Apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, we will continue to experiment, we will continue to get disappointed, and we will continue to stack shame and guilt onto our souls. Because you know what? All those marriages were a real burr in that woman. How heartbroken she must have been. Sin crushes the soul. Forget about the people jeering at her and making fun of her and excluding her from all things. She was a walking time bomb of despair. She was living in despair. Not just because of her circumstances, but because of her choices and because of her sin. The only remedy was for her to take that water to take Christ. To be washed, cleansed, forgiven, restored to God. To have the Holy Spirit. You don't do that. You will not even begin to be satisfied. We must receive the person and work of Jesus. We must receive Jesus' gracious offer here. Do we honestly think that this offer that He's making to her is just for her? If it was just for her, I wouldn't come here and waste your time. It's for me. It's for you. Why tarry? Why wait? Believe now. 